0: The kind of higher up the career ladder I I travel, and I guess become more of a more of a threat to other people or a competition to other other people, it becomes uh, more of an issue, um, and it's kind of it's quite sad, really. I think that it's still a problem now, and I kind of I fluctuate between you know still feeling like real frustration over that, um, and you know, and I suppose anger at times for how it can hold me back or how you know other people hold me back because of it, um, and the excitement of kind of trailblazing as well because every single one of us, male or female, is kind of trailblazing at the moment like a new normal uh, in terms of like gender roles Uh, because, you know, as the female gender role evolves, so too does the male one and we have to work together, you know, to kind of normalise things.
1: Welcome to the Sam Gash Podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers. Trailblazers. Rule breakers and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble, yet they all display an ability to innovate and contribute, even when the odds are not in their favour. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. I'm your host, Samantha Gash, and I'm an endurance athlete, a former corporate lawyer, and social impact entrepreneur. It is my absolute privilege to create the space for these guests. If you found these conversations to be of value or have any feedback, please subscribe, rate and review, and I hope you enjoy. Well, I am very excited to share this conversation. It's unique. It's special. It's with Megan Hine, who is a British survival consultant, adventurer, climber, television presenter and writer. Now, she's widely known for her work alongside Bear Grylls, as well as a wide range of TV shows all over the world. She has had a lifelong thirst for travel and adventure, and it's amassed her a huge amount of expertise in pretty much every aspect of the outdoors. She's pushed both her mental and physical limits in extreme environments, exploring remote jungles, arid deserts, and high and cold mountains. In doing so, she's taken private clients, celebrities and television crews to extreme and beautiful places that they didn't even know existed. Her book is called Mind of a Survivor. It's fantastic. And so too is this conversation. I, I hope you guys love it. We go into topics that we haven't explored before on this podcast, and it was a real privilege to be able to chat with Megan. Yeah, you know, I know
0: because I know from... Um hosting as well it's like uh you know it's really hard isn't it to uh, not get so excited in that initial
1: chat and like give away everything (laughs) take away the spontaneity i know and then we start kind of talking we're like okay let's go into the official part now I'm so excited to have you on the podcast and as I kind of told you before, it, I feel it's a, very, a great privilege to share some space with you and, and have the opportunity to hear more of your story because you've got a breadth and a depth of experiences that are incredible. You're a climber, a survivalist, an adventure consultant. I love the definition that Nat Geo wrote about you going, the woman who safeguards some of the biggest survival shows on TV, you know, from Running Wild and Man vs. Wild You're an author of a book called Mind of a Survivor, an ambassador of Scouting UK, a TEDx speaker, expedition guide, leader, podcast host. The list could go on and we'll definitely go through it. So it's going to be amazing to do a deep dive with you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I can't believe that that's actually me. That sounds (laughs) quite, quite, (laughs) it's funny, isn't
0: it? Because all these things that... I do it's like it's so they're so exciting in the moment but it's kind of like once I've done them you know I suppose it's like writing my book as well it's like I wrote the book and then it's like I kind of then move on to the next project it's like I'm always moving forwards looking for like new adventure so I kind of forget about these things
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah. And I mean, obviously you're not always doing them at the exact same time. It's, you know, when you work for yourself, you kind of go in in a world and then you go out of the world, but all of this makes up you. And, you know, in each new experience, you bring with you those past experiences and they're diverse. And so I thought it would be really interesting to kind of give you, give context to the listeners, to the fact that you and I have never met which is actually quite unique uh, for my podcast. I typically kind of speak to people that I've had past relationships with. But I stumbled across your Instagram account via Stanny Greenway, who I briefly met in Fiji when he was working with Bear Grills uh, for Eco Challenge. And then it kind of sent me down this fabulous rabbit hole where I was reading your captions late at night, uh, one night, and I just loved the way that you shared your lens on adventure. I found it incredibly refreshing uh, in its depth and also the unique perspective. And I kind of just knew I had to get you on the podcast because I think what you share and the way that you do it is incredibly important to be heard today. Well, thank you. We already established before we recorded that you're terrible at taking compliments.
0: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, yeah, It's really funny, isn't it? Because we were talking about this actually before we started recording. Um and actually I actually I think it's a really important uh thing to to look at because I think it's something that um a lot of uh you know b- People who are like high performance individuals and women in particular as well tend to do that as well it 's like we just don 't take compliments very well and it's like we were, you know we were saying weren 't we about how uh, it's easier to kind of take constructive feedback or kind of negative feedback because there's something that we can do with it it's tangible it's something that we can kind of relate to ourselves and I think we can be our own worst critic, which I guess is you know partly what drives us to achieve uh, and to push ourselves forwards and always be moving forwards. Uh, But it's also sometimes I think, you know, I know for myself, it's like sometimes we do need to be a little bit kinder to ourselves and actually be like, yeah,
1: hell yeah, that's me. (laughs) Oh, I'm definitely not one to judge. I'm not great in this space either. Um, But I do actually think that when you can Certainly, give a compliment, but also accept one. It's something that actually helps cultivate a very healthy relationship uh, with our own self worth and the relationship with other people.
0: Do you ever watch? There was um, I was like years ago. Uh, it was a ski movie that came out called Claim, and I just I thought the concept of it was absolutely brilliant because it was. It was, it's kind of really cool within like the adventure industry to kind of not claim things, to be a bit like ambivalent about stuff to like, you know, shred some crazy powder or, you know, climb some crazy like mountain and stuff and be like, meh. (laughs) yeah I just did it whereas this movie this this ski movie was all about claiming those moments and it had all these epic shots of these skiers and snowboarders like shredding these incredible lines and just being like yeah I just did that and it was just so powerful it's like I tried to do that myself I tried to remind myself in those moments to actually celebrate and not even like you know the big pinnacle moments in our lives but also like the little Uh, moments every day as well because I think otherwise we kind of get stuck in this kind of monotonous routine of just ticking off our daily chores and not actually kind of celebrating what we we've actually achieved which um what way do you
1: celebrate
0: (laughs) Uh, so it's more like well, this little cheerleader in my head, which also kind of helps me keep going. Like when I'm when I'm running or uh, you're feeling really exhausted, and it's this little cheerleader in my head. So it's like, come on, you can do it, woohoo! <laughs> and I'm having those, like you know, those kind of like epic, like like those those pinnacle moments in that in that film claim where they're kind of the snowboarder standing on the top of the mountain, like with his arms up and like, Whoo! and it's like, in my head, it's like kind of that little soundtrack of then like, you kind of celebrating that and letting those emotions out. Um, or maybe it's just a very British thing. I don't, I don't know <laughs> if it's the same for you guys, but it's a very British thing to not show our emotions and, you know, to celebrate our victories.
1: Oh, it's I mean, I think Australians are quite similar, which I think is why sometimes we're not actually that great uh, on reality TV shows, (laughs) because when you face adversity or hardship or even something momentous, our response is often really similar. Um, so there's not this like distinction between this was the hardest moment in my life versus I am an amazing human (laughs) Um, we're kind of a bit more monotonous so it's probably a little bit boring to sometimes observe um, some Australians on TV because we just don't give the audience what they want. (laughs) Well you know I mean that's I mean that's a huge part of what
0: I do um, sort of with the the producing side of things with the TV side of things is that, I mean, you're so right. And it's, it's a shame because I always get asked a lot, like why there aren't more women on TV, why there isn't like kind of different formats of survival shows and and things. Uh, And it is for that very reason is that the general audience needs to see those kind of like uh, that emotional roller coaster and people struggling and really kind of showing those emotions in like a huge way, which for, for those of us that kind of operate in adventure, and I'd imagine it's maybe the same for yourself as well, you know, with the kind of the adventure racing and stuff, is that you learn to control those emotions because they get it like fear and anxiety. They get in the way, otherwise, um, of being able to do your job, and they become overwhelming, and they become all that you can focus on. And you're right. In in TV terms, <laughs> having somebody who's so good at controlling their emotions, uh, because they're so flipping good at what they do, <laughs> doesn't make good TV. And it's in the early days of like survival uh, TV and things. I worked on some, you know, very real. Uh, survival shows um, and they just never did very well because actually, you know, the reality in these scenarios is that, you know, people learn to kind of control their fear, control their anxiety uh, and also conserve energy, (laughs) which when people are just kind of sitting there,
1: (laughs) it doesn't make good TV at all. Yeah, I've I've always thought about that because I wonder if that's a problem with like consumers and, and, you know, viewers of TV, like maybe it would be a lot more Uh, helpful for us as human beings to be comfortable watching someone not in high extremes of emotions? Like why do we need to see that to feel like that person is on a a valuable journey? Um, I think there's like an interesting science behind someone who chooses in moments to compartmentalise, to experience something and to kind of move forward. Um, But, you know, we don't like to glamorize that. We don't think that's entertaining or interesting and isn't that potentially a problem with the viewer?
0: Yeah, I think, I would think it gives an unrealistic view of life. Um, there's a lot of reality TV shows. Uh, I know that things like Celebrity Love Island, Love Island, um, these kind of very high drama, uh, shows, uh, do very, very well. Um, because I think it's, for a lot of people, it's escapism. It's seeing, mm. It, t- it sounds awful but, but i think for a lot of us it's actually seeing that other people are struggling and other people are having a shit time of it, <laughs> it kind of <laughs> makes us feel better uh, so i think that's that's why a lot of us kind of buy into it because you know the for for the majority of us you know getting through every single day is a survival <laughs> challenge in itself you know try like particularly at the moment with the current climate with covid and like the pandemic and it's affected every single one of us in a way and You know, in each one of us, uh, we're we're all struggling for for survival and getting through, getting the kids up, getting the kids to school, uh, trying to make ends meet, social engagements, having an adventurous life—all these things that kind of social media says that we should have, that our culture and society say that we should have—and trying to get through every day. Uh, is is a struggle in itself. So actually, it kind of makes us feel better. and it's a bit of escapism to watch other people, you know, struggling <laughs> in a
1: very emotional way. Oh, it's funny how we find it comforting. but i I mean, I've got to say I have found the last six months quite challenging Um, and I've gone from moments of being very calm and controlled and um, just kind of succumbing to what it is, um, just kind of being with it and then other moments I've realised it's been incredibly fatiguing Uh, and my husband and I, you know, we're in quite a strict lockdown. We've we've really pretty much been in a lockdown for six months with the exception of six weeks where we had a bit more kind of freedom and then we went back into stage four lockdown. And I said to Marsman the other day, I feel like I've aged the last six months and that's hilarious because I haven't travelled and I haven't had such a frenetic pace of life. But I haven't had things to be able to look forward to. I haven't been able to plan like I used to and I've... I guess I've realised how wired my brain has been to that as a sense of joy and fulfilment and excitement. So when you can't look forward to stuff, it it feels really different. And I, I know that you've had some travel recently for work, which I'm so happy to hear that you know people in your industry are able to get back to some type of work. But for you, how was how has I guess the last six months been from someone who typically travels ten to eleven months of the year, and perhaps. Describe what it was like in the early times of lockdown and maybe now six months down the track.
0: So I think for me, it's been like, it's been a bit of a a roller coaster. I think initially I was in a weird sort of way. I mean, I wasn't, you know, obviously not happy that, um, you know, people are struggling, people are losing their lives. Um, But for me on a personal level, it was actually quite nice just to stop. Uh, My life, as you say, is 10, 11 months of the year on the road. Um, And that's, you know, often in, very high stress situations and environments uh, looking after the lives of other people uh, in these, in these quite hostile and exciting environments. Uh, I think I've, I underestimated like the amount of stress that puts on the body and the mind. And I guess over the years I've just become very good at dealing with that. Uh, But I hadn't realized how tired I was. So for me at the beginning of lockdown, it was, it was, it was really nice just to have an excuse to stop because I'm kind of, I'm somebody who just likes to keep moving forwards and seeing what's happening in the world and exploring and curious like kind of exploring myself within my environment as well. So actually being forced to stop uh, was a very good thing for me. Uh, and you know I noticed that I was able to get into a routine, which I'm not able to do in my sort of normal travel life because I'm jumping time zones, uh, jumping hotels, hammocks tense (laughs) all the time so actually being able to get into a routine and actually be able to focus on nutrition and sleep and um, exercise and things was was so so good so beneficial for me Uh, more recently I've it's become uh, I guess there's been a lot more stress more recently because um, as, as a freelancer and somebody who owns like a small business that relies on travel uh, it's, there's so much unknown, um, and there's a lot of fear around the unknown. Uh, you know, there always has been from, you know, our ancestral days as well, you know, that unknown causes a lot of stress in us, um, and puts us into kind of the fight or flight response. Uh, so yeah, kind of having to manage that recently, you know, fear over kind of like what the future holds in terms of travel and my career, um, and in terms of, uh, like finances and things and how, you know, how how tight, how you should manage your finances and, and things, particularly as a freelancer kind of who relies on, you know, kind of jobs coming in on a
1: month-by-month month, uh, basis? Oh, you're speaking my language. I um, relate to a lot of that and I think, um, you know, initially I was surprised how well we were doing even though not the same level of income was coming in, but it's because we stripped everything back and I was like, oh, we actually don't need as much to survive. But then as you kind of, as things will start to open up, you're like, oh, it's amazing how quickly we adapt back to what we used to have, meaning I'll go and get my eyebrows done. I'll, um, you know, go out for dinner. And when you have less income coming in, but the world is opening up and your freedom is greater, you actually want to kind of have a bit more of that income that you used to have. So I think a lot of people are going through these roller coaster of emotions And it's interesting how you said at the beginning that when you came home and you were grounded, you were able to get back to like the basics of exercise, eating better, sleeping more, which are essentially the fundamentals of recovery and performance. And I have always found it so ironic that when we actually demand the most from our bodies, either physically or intellectually, we don't do the fundamentals.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so true. I think, particularly in the the way that we live now, is not is not so healthy. Uh, you know, we're constantly striving for more, striving for better. Uh, you know, there's so much, um, you know, things on social media that drives us to you know feel like we have to have these things like an adventurous life, um, <laughs> these amazing holidays, mm. houses, cars these material possessions and things and there's there's a huge amount um, of stress on achieving all of those things and kind of we kind of work ourselves to death in a way and we don't really give ourselves time during the day or most of us don't to kind of actually just kind of sit uh, with ourselves and kind of appreciate you know what we do have and how far we've come uh, and to kind of take that pressure off ourselves um, and there's this constant battle for, you know, for, for moving ourselves forwards and thinking that we should have all of these things. Whereas actually, you know, the things that really are fundamentally important to ourselves, you know, if, if we think about like kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs are our very basic, uh, you know, kind of priorities of survival, which are, you know, sleep, you know shelter, food, water, uh, you know, making sure we've got the right nutrients, making sure we're hydrated and sleeping and so much of our society now goes against prioritizing those things you know we've we've kind of we're so incredible as human beings it's like we create these absolutely incredible things uh, like technology um but with doing that we're kind of detrimental to our own selves as well <laughs> and it's like we've created ways uh, to prevent you know these natural like fundamental things that like you were saying uh, from actually happening so you know from sleep we've created light we've created screens that we can see in the dark <laughs> and do still keep, keep doing our work we've you know we've created caffeine and uh, kind of all these stimulants and stuff that just to overcome like you know what nature is trying to tell us that we need <laughs> it's crazy really yeah. when you start thinking about it like that
1: well, how have you coped with the uncertainty? Because it's not like there's any answer to you really immediately. Um, there's still so much unknown. Um, kind of what do you do to keep yourself calm during these times?
0: Well, I think a lot of it comes down to acceptance, um, like accepting the fact that it's a situation I can't change. Um, there's there's no point in kind of putting energy into kind of battling it because it's, you know, it's it's above what, you know, what I personally can, can solve. Uh, so it's having acceptance and having kind of faith in the thing that everything will be okay. Um, you know, so as long as we kind of, do follow kind of governmental guidelines to some extent or well, um, (laughs) as much as we can uh, to kind of, you know, make sure that we uh, we quarantine and, uh, you know, and take precautions, particularly as we're going into the winter. You know, I know a lot Mm. of countries, because this is starting to affect my work again now, is a lot of countries because, you know, kids have gone back to school, uh, students have gone back to universities, uh, and there's been more spikes and things um and so you know there's talk about putting countries back into lockdown uh the for me at the moment like we're very much focused on kind of like the color codes of countries um and like how high risk they are and that's really kind of affecting things so and these seem to be changing on like a weekly basis um so that yeah there's a lot of unknowns so it's kind of accepting that um and then for the financial side of things because i have a limited company in the uk uh, I can't get I can't get any governmental support or very minimal governmental support. So that's for me has been like a real worry, and I think I I feel very very fortunate that the past few years I've been working so hard that. Um, and obviously when i'm on the road it's it's quite hard to spend spend money <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i've been very very fortunate with that that you know that i have you know i'm I, i'll if if i can't work again you know if we do go back into lockdown i'll be okay for a few months and i feel very very fortunate because i know there are people that aren't in that situation uh, but you know if it's if it's more than a few months then you know then i will be in trouble and it's hard not to focus on those bits but to then to yeah. keep faith that everything will work itself out one way or another
1: yeah and i think you almost have to have faith and and take it a day at a time because things are changing so rapidly uh, that it's almost not worth your mental energy trying to go too far ahead when there's just the parameters around it are so unclear.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and I think a huge part of that is, like, is removing ourselves from, uh, like, the stimulation of, you know, the the kind of um, triggering fear and things, which is, you know, the newspapers, the news, uh, you know, constant stream of like of uh image, you know, of stories of people dying, of people losing everything, of you know, the corona thing, you know, working in the media, (laughs) as we were saying earlier, it's like you need that emotion. You need that what we try to do when we produce shows is trigger emotions in people. And it's like you know it's successful when you've triggered that. And like an easy emotion to trigger in people is fear. It's much easier to trigger fear than it is to trigger joy or happiness. Uh, And this is what these, you know, these media like channels, uh, the news and things are are thriving on is triggering that fear response in us, uh, because it gets you hooked, like looking for more. And, you know, we have to distance ourselves from that. And, you know, I I tend to check in occasionally, I check in on like, you know, kind of reliable sites, uh, more around work of like, you know, which countries are closing, what the restrictions are. And I look at it in a very practical way, rather than kind of getting really drawn into it uh, emotionally.
1: Isn't it funny because you know that's what the, like the headlines are all about. Um, but still you're just a human being and you kind of respond to it in that same emotional way. I mean, in in Victoria, you know, things are getting a lot better than what they were, but still the media goes, you know, eight cases, which is good. And then it'll go but a a super spreader at this supermarket all in the one sentence. And I was just like they kind of have to acknowledge that things are are good but then they just want to make sure they finish it with a bit of a bang. And so I think it is a great reminder for people to take the headlines as a grain of salt because they are designed to draw you in to read more uh and to maybe go to the substance of the article and then kind of see the overview of it and kind of extract the facts and kind of remove the emotion but you you have to keep reminding yourself about that
0: Absolutely. And I think, we you know, fundamentally, and this is something that we all forget, is that we're animals. <laughs> we're just like every other animal on this planet that we have this very primitive part of our brain that is hardwired to look out for danger in our environment all the time because it's a survival thing. You know, yes, we've created this amazing world around us where, in theory, you know, we should be safe in it. Uh, but that primitive part of the brain is still working and it wor- it's working over time. So it's constantly scanning the environment through your senses, looking for potential threats. And whenever it sees those, it then hones in on that and like and triggers the fight-flight response. So, you know, constantly seeing these, these stories and things in the media, um, kind of being thinking about, you know, your finances, seeing other people having these great lives on social media, all of these things uh, are brains still react in that very, very primitive way in the same way that every other animal does in triggering that fight or flight or freeze response uh, that kind of really kind of shuts us down or creates panic in, in our systems. And if we're not careful because of the way that we live now, we can become chronically uh stressed and chronically in this situation which is then what starts leading to uh things like autoimmune diseases to digestion problems uh, and it really messing with our physical health as well um so you know it wouldn't it's not surprising if there are you know if you're listening to this and you're feeling stressed and you're starting to have you know things like irritable bowel syndrome so you know suffering with you know upset stomach or you know kind of fluctuation in your digestive habits uh, and bowel movements and things uh, and that's a symptom like a physical symptom of kind of like of stress really starting to affect
1: your system I mean I'm sure throughout your life and not just in this time right now you've experienced a, a wide a range of stresses what are some of the signs that you notice within yourself um when you can tell like okay I'm in a heightened stress mode
0: um, but this is, it's, it's funny that you say this because it's actually, it's only more recently that I've become a lot more aware of this. Uh, I became very good early on in my career. I've been working in the outdoor industry, like kind of taking people out, guiding people and leading expeditions and things, uh, since the age of 17. Um, so I kind of, I don't really know anything else. And it's only kind of more recently that I've really kind of started honing in on, uh, on my stress response, uh, because I became very, very good at separating out my emotions. Uh, so you know, when I'm leading other people, I can't let my fear or anxiety uh, get in the way, because those are potentially overwhelming emotions, and those emotions can actually stop me being able to do my job properly or to be able to look after other people in those situations. Uh, And when like the shit really hits the fan and things like really go crazy, uh, you really have to kind of be able to focus in on, you know, those, uh, you know, and be able to control that. So that, you know, if, for example, like a road traffic accident, you know, trying to manage that in a situation like that, you have to be able to kind of separate out the fear and anxiety to be able to actually deal with that scenario in a kind of very clear-minded way. Um, so I became very, very good at that. And it was maybe a couple of years ago, uh, I was on a job in Switzerland, I think it was, and I'd, I'd been rigging, so I'd been doing some stunt rigging. And I was just returning back to the hotel. And I just picked up my my rigging bag, which was, you know, maybe 20 kilograms, which is kind of, so I'm so used to kind of picking that up and throwing it on my back. When I picked it up, threw it on my back and something in my lower back popped Uh, and I was like in excruciating pain and it just kind of got worse and worse. Um, and it was, it was awful. And the guys ended up taking me as Yustani was there, (laughs) um, ended up taking me straight to to the hospital. Uh, and they couldn't really see anything wrong with me. Uh, and a few days later I was, you know, I was back on my feet and walking again. So I kind of realized that it wasn't really a physical thing. You know, if I'd done some serious damage to my back, I wouldn't have been walking again within a couple of days uh you know so it kind of made me really question what was going on and I realized that it was like it was a build-up of stress in my life that I'm very very good at kind of, I just store the stress in my body and I particularly store it in my hip area you know like if you're walking on something really a really slippery surface or like an icy surface and it's like you you've kind of body kind of tenses in your hip area I like that's what happens to me when I get stressed Uh, And I've become very, very aware of this since this uh, scenario with with my back. I've become very, very aware of this um, and kind of very focused on that. So when I do start feeling stress, I really kind of hone in on those areas and kind of just I tell my body uh, to relax itself.
1: Oh, the mind and the body are so interconnected. I mean... You must have been able to absorb that degree of stress for so long uh, and to not even realise. And then it it just seems like it got to this point where it accumulated so much that no longer could it withstand that amount without being released. And probably once you've tipped the scales once, um, you tip it a lot quicker But I guess the beauty of now recognizing that, and because you're someone that's clearly quite self-aware, you are able to mitigate and to really be attuned to those signs. Uh, And for me, like I know that I hold tension in my neck when I'm stressed. And uh, my sister actually gave me a massage just before in my neck, and straight away, she could kind of feel the knots and that tightness in that part of my body, and she goes, Oh Sam, I think you're holding on to a little bit of stress right now. Are you okay? And I, you know, even though no one wants to hear, are you stressed right now? Uh, It's been very helpful for me to communicate my stress triggers uh, and indicators with people close in my life. It's so
0: true. because how does that manifest itself is it is it thought that trigger your neck to become
1: stiff or is it it's tension in my body so I think if I'm feeling stressed my uh, shoulders will look up and in fact like one of my stress reduces is going for a run but if I'm that stressed I'll be running and my shoulders will be heightened and so that just causes kind of like more pain in my neck um and probably when I'm typing, if I'm stressed and I'm doing work, like they're going up and up and up and up and, you know, my jaw can lock a little bit. So that's, uh, it, it's really clear indicator for me, but sometimes when you are so in a state of overwhelm, it's hard for you to remember that's what it is because you're in a place. So I think communicating with like your loved ones, um, they can be like, oh, your neck looks, your jaw's locking out or, you know, there's like, there's little kind of triggers that can help you get out of it as well. It's so true, and I think it's communicating it with yourself
0: as well, isn't it? I think we're yeah. so good, you know, I don't imagine with your like, incredible career uh, racing as well, that you're very, very good at actually kind of shutting off that side of it and ignoring it <laughs> so you can carry on, you know, with, with your race. I mean, how,
1: how do you manage the, the stress like, yourself? How do you manage the stress of those races? Well, kind of like you spoke before about the detachment uh, and going on autopilot. The way I try and liken it is if you're a surgeon, um, you're not always going to be having a great day when you have to go into surgery, but you're a professional, so you can step into, you know, your professional capabilities and your job, but it doesn't mean that you weren't having a terrible day leading into it. Uh, and I say it's the same as like an ultra runner or, you know, for you doing the work in like survivalist and, and leading potentially strangers in really complicated, extreme situations. You can be having a bad day, but when you need to put it on, you can be in autopilot and do your job. And then the question is, how do you deal with it afterwards? Because there's only so often that you can keep operating in stress before it might overfill into your professional life. Uh, and so I, one of the questions I kind of was having when you were talking about detaching when you need to, if there's a threat, and let's say you've got your, um, the people that you're guiding, when do, does empathy get shut off when you're detaching to be able to deal with that situation? <laughs> this is a really interesting question. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> um, question. It. Um no, actually, which is it in, is interesting. Um empathy for myself uh, and understanding of myself gets shut off. Uh but empathy for other people doesn't. Uh in a way, I guess that it's by being able to shut off and kind of detach from uh you know fear and anxiety and my own kind of reaction to uh you know these stressful situations um, actually it's an incredible feeling and I remember the first time that this happened uh, was it was like this metal box opened and I put in this fear and anxiety and shut it and it's like I heard it go clang <laughs> and I kind of was able then to kind of just everything was just suddenly very very clear uh, and it's kind of just like hyper awareness uh, which is just the most beautiful kind of thing to feel and to see, because it's like there's no thoughts, no everyday kind of stresses or anything is is in there anymore. It's just an open book, (laughs) like if you like. Um, Mm. It's an incredible feeling. Um, And, you know, I think that when I do that, it then allows me actually to kind of be able to see situations much more clearly. And that includes having like empathy for others and understanding what other people might be going through. Um, I guess that's kind of my leadership style, I suppose, when I when I am guiding is that to connect with my clients on a very emotional level uh, to kind of really kind of see uh, how they're doing and to read their body language to kind of see and feel like what they're not telling me, uh, because I often operate in very remote areas where, you know, rescue might be 24 hours, maybe more uh, away from us. And um, most of it, particularly like in jungle environments and stuff, you know, there's definitely no rescue at night. Um, so you kind of have to be able to manage those situations and manage the people and manage their expectations. Uh, and a large part of, you know, what I'm doing when I'm guiding, the film looks a bit different, but when I'm actually, when I'm guiding clients is to kind of not let the scenarios get to the point uh, where I've lost control. Uh, so a huge part of how I do that is by constantly monitoring the my clients and their behavior, what they're not telling me uh, and really kind of connecting with them and trying to build up that uh, rapport with them where they're happy talking about or telling me everything or uh, you know even like down for me, like particularly on longer trips, uh, people's bowel health is really yeah. key to telling me how they're doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm so it's like right at the very beginning.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a runner. We talk about poo all the time. You're fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you have to because it's it's such a good way of like telling like how somebody's doing and like you know the c- consistency of somebody's um, of somebody's shit, like how they're going. And it's I had this I had this one girl like oh, I was years ago. I was leading like a youth expedition out to um, Thailand or Cambodia. Uh, it was like a jungle trip, and uh, this this girl like maybe it was maybe like two weeks into like a month long trip and uh 10 days of that had been out in the jungle and we were still we still got like a week left in the jungle we're kind of trekking through and doing kind of survival stuff and spending time with native peoples out there uh and it was like 10 days in and this this girl's friend came to me and she said oh this girl she hasn't she hasn't been to the toilet for like 10 days (laughs) um she's getting a little bit worried Oh, so I was like okay well 10 days is a long time to go without going <laughs> yeah. this is not this is not a good situation so you know I, I went and chatted to her and had the conversation and was like okay well you know she she just freaked out she just she couldn't she just couldn't go out in the jungle for some reason there was like some mental block in her head that was just not allowing her to go uh, to the toilet in the jungle um so you know I was like right well we really need to sort this out so I was carrying laxatives so I like I dosed her with laxatives and uh gave her a load of bananas and things and like nothing nothing happened um so I was like oh shit like so you know we had we had another 10 days but I managed to cut it down to five and we managed to get out and get her out and she still hadn't gone um so I went into went into a hospital uh with her uh and they gave her some like really hardcore laxatives uh, and we had like an overnight train journey um, so I sat up with her all night and she was she was screaming she wouldn't she still couldn't go to the toilet um, and she was kind of screaming and stuff I was like oh my gosh she's maybe she's got like a twisted bowel or you know there's something internal going on this is really not a good scenario so as soon as we got in uh, to, to where we were going we had this overnight train journey as soon as we got into the city we we ended up in uh, it was like I took her straight into the local hospital there. Um, and they they physically had to go in, like I went in with her and it was, yeah, like they physically had to go in this nurse, like literally putting her hand up there and pulling out like it looked like <sighs> rope. It was, oh, it was, wow. the smell was horrendous. It was <laughs> absolutely <horrible>. awful. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was just, insane. <laughs> I just, I hadn't realized at that point that actually you can be so, that your mind can have so much control over your body when it doesn't want to do something. Um, and that was like, that was a really good kind of lesson for me as well, in just how important like these conversations and these kind of uncomfortable conversations, uh, can be. And, you know, when I'm working with people from different cultures where, you know, talking about certain things is very taboo, uh, it's finding a way to be able to make it, you know, comfortable to be able to talk about that. You know, I'm, you know, as, as you know, like us women, we're, our anatomies aren't that great (laughs) and we, we can be quite prone in like, you know, humid environments to things like cystitis and thrush and things Uh, so being able to have those conversations is really important
1: how much pre-work or um, communications will you have with the clients before you're out on the trip because I'm I'm guessing when you've kind of got I don't know I mean how many would be in your group six ten
0: um it's totally dependent so when I I used to do a lot of guiding for for other companies and that could be you know maximum kind of like 12 people um, I preferred smaller groups because when you're on your own with kind of 12 people and you're manage- trying to manage 12 people's expectations, <laughs> it can <sighs> be a bit of a nightmare. Um, and like when you're on, on your own, like doing this for like a month at a time, it can be pretty <laughs> oh um Well, so- yeah, and
1: I'm thinking about it, you've got all these people, whether it's, you know, a small group or not, not everyone reveals... You know, their true self straight away. Because, you know, if you don't know other people, sometimes egos at play. So it's hard to kind of sometimes, some people are very easy to read and other people you might have to work a little bit hard. So is there a process that you go before you all get together at the trip to try and understand who the people are that you're going to share that experience with?
0: Um, Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm guiding for other companies, often it's like a case of like rocking up in country (laughs) and that's the first time that I meet meet the people. Um, and then it's again, that kind of like reading body language, you know, what somebody's wearing, like the state of their footwear is a really good indicator of like how much experience they've got, how they hold themselves, their confidence. So it's like, I'm kind of like, I do like a scan of, you know, people, it's kind of mostly subconscious, um, uh, of that of those people to kind of you know pinpoint the people that might provide a like might become a risk <laughs> to me or the rest yep. of the team um, whereas I like, with my own clients so I, I do uh, private guiding as well so I have like private clients uh, and with that it's a lot easier then to kind of get the conversations going <clears throat> though I, I do work with higher profile individuals and often I won't Necessarily have direct contact with them until we're on the trip. Uh, so then it's kind of relying and hoping that you know the information that I'm being given uh, by their people is you know, is correct. <laughs> um, and often you know they're trying to hide stuff. So again, it's like you know it's being able to react to a situation like when you face it. So you know I think a lot of people have um, kind of don't really understand their own uh, level. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, and they, a lot of people often think that they're, you know, more experienced than than they actually are, um, so that is quite hard, you know, even through questionnaires, when you're saying, you know, what's your previous experience, you know, what level would you consider yourself at, you know, you kind of always have to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt, and then it's just a case of kind of reacting on the ground when you actually get into country. <laughs>
1: I think his experience is so relative because in your group of friends back home, you could be the most experienced person, but then in an entirely different group, you could have the least amount of experience. So yeah, I'm sure some people's ego kind of is a block to sharing the real information. And then other times people just don't know uh, if they haven't really done this type of stuff. When you're crafting these trips that you're going to lead, like what's What's the types of trips that you like to do? You said before you like to get really remote. Um, so, what would be kind of a, a dream itinerary that you would plan out?
0: Um, so, for me, it's like remote and places that I've never been to before. I get a real kick out of like uh, guiding and like navigating and stuff in places that I've I've never been to before as well. Um, so, and when I'm setting up expeditions for for my clients. Uh, it's all in the pre-planning, so it's all in the logistics beforehand. So you, no expedition, just like life, <laughs> ever goes to plan exactly <laughs> kind of plan. There's always something that happens that you just you couldn't predict for. Uh, you know, weather conditions, uh, natural disasters, political issues, whatever it might be, always kind of pops up. So for me, it's a case of like building this safety net. You know, I think social media can be a little bit um, misleading when people are talking about going off on expeditions because... Because the majority of the people that you see on social media, they haven't just gone off on an expedition. They haven't just woken up and been like, "Right, I'm going to the Amazon." It's like there's been months and months of pre-planning or training that's kind of gone into that into that trip. Um, and you know, for for me, that's setting up this kind of safety net that when things do. Go wrong or do change on an expedition i've got this safety net behind me that i can fall into i know where how to get people out i know you know where all the embassies are um, i kind of have got you know contacts with the local rescue teams you know maybe it's the military i've really kind of looked into kind of all of these things so that there's like this process this steps that i go through whenever i'm setting up any expedition to make sure that when we are in country like i have like a real duty of care to my clients to make sure that they're as safe as possible
1: I mean, you're creating courses for um, survival shows. You're taking people um, through your guiding experiences to places that they potentially could never even imagine. If you had to go back to your childhood or to your past experiences, where do you think like were some of the trigger points where you were like, okay, this is kind of where in my childhood where I can point back that interest or that desire?
0: (laughs) So I was given a book when I was, uh, about six or seven by um, some cousins that visited, actually from Australia. Uh, but it was a book called The Land of the Long White Cloud, which is a book about Maori culture uh, in, from New Zealand. And it was just the most beautiful pictures in there. And there was something that just really appealed to my my childhood self um, in these these pictures. And I would just spend, I'd be under the covers at night with my torch and like looking at these pictures. And from that age, I just, I wanted to go to New Zealand. Uh, I didn't get the chance to travel as a child. Um, So it was just something that I really, really wanted to do. So when I was 17, I worked in a pub and uh, in an outdoor centre in the summer and kind of earned enough for a ticket uh, to go out to New Zealand, where I then spent 10 months working in an outdoor centre actually out there. Um, And that for me was like a real kind of like pinnacle moment, I suppose, in kind of setting me on my path. Um, and yeah, I think it's such a young age to be really drawn into something. And then at 17, 18, cause I was quite shy as a kid, but like, I always had this kind of real kind of drive inside and it's like, that was never going to get in the way of going out. And I actually kind of look back on myself now and think at 17, wow, <laughs> like 17 year olds to me now, like seem really young. It's like, wow, I went home, like <laughs> as far as I get the other side of the world at that age by
1: myself. Like that was, that was pretty brave. I love that visualisation of you reading that book uh, and then years down the track being able to live out the pictures from the book. And it's just, it is so, such a reminder that the things that we're exposed to, either with like such close physical proximity or even from like the stories that we're told and that we read, you know, they can influence the things that we have desire to do down the track. You know, I read somewhere in your social media where you, you wrote something to the effect of, you know, I had to develop a resilient and independence from a really young age to survive. Um, do you remember writing that and in what context uh, it was given? Um, I can't remember when I said that. <laughs> I say a lot of random stuff. <laughs> but, but <no. laughs> I mean,
0: like you, I mean, I, I was very fortunate um, in how in where I grew up and how I grew up um but I think the like the emotional uh side of things was quite lacking uh from mm-hmm. from my childhood at times um and so I had to kind of develop quite a young age of very kind of like independent streak and just kind of realize that actually at that age it's like right I really just need to make sure if I want to do anything if I want to go anywhere like this I have to be self-reliant I have to do this myself um and I you know I kind of remember I remember actually that kind of almost that kind of moment, which was like about 13 or 14. uh, And that kind of, it was like hit me with kind of like clarity of like, right, you know, I, if I want to do these things, I need to make it happen and I'm going to make it happen. (laughs) Um, So I think as I got, I've got older and kind of more recently, you know, I've realized that that was, that was an incredible thing to have at that age. And it's like, as you get older and you realize that actually you've got the survival skills behind you through everything that you've been through in life, every single one of us, you know, have got our own life stories. We've survived as far. We've all had our own demons to fight, fight and we've all yeah. been through our own hardships. And we get to a point where actually, you know, those kind of childhood survival mechanisms, we don't necessarily need them anymore. You know, so for me, it was that like cutting off everybody else and just being really focused and independent. And it's like, as you get older, you kind of realize, well, you need to realize that actually you don't need those things anymore. A lot of our programming in our brains goes on until we're between our ages, like, zero to seven. So if you think a lot of, like, the default programming, the way we interact with the world, the way we react to situations and other people was programmed into us when we were really really young and that's kind of scary really that like you know I'm 36 it's like I'm 36 and it's like my six-year-old self is kind of like running my life still (laughs) and it's like the survival skills and survival mechanisms that she needed then I don't necessarily need now because I've got a lifetime of experience now behind me to know that I can survive and I'm going to be okay so you know it's been a been kind of brought to my attention through my own time, thought processes and stuff that I actually need to kind of, you know, let other people in more and you don't need to be so independent all the time.
1: I hadn't actually um, thought about that before. You know, I'd never thought that the way that we're programmed as a child for to have survival mechanisms on the on the basis that we can't function autonomously can down the track, I guess, be a means to actually hold us um, or sabotage our adult self. Oh, I mean, it also makes me think as my role as a parent, like what's that line of obviously giving them the protections that they need, but, you know, are you meant to be trying to inform them that they'll be released of those or they need to release themselves of that down the track? Yeah, I, it's definitely kind of left me with to think a bit about that. Um, you know, have you always had this thirst uh, for survival um, or thirst for adventure? (laughs) I I loved the outdoors, like from a
0: very, very young age. Um, I think I I was very fortunate that the outdoors was a huge part of my upbringing. So my parents were both um, geographers. My dad was originally a geologist and used to do like a lot of crazy expeditions like before I was born. Mm -hmm. Um, where he'd go off to um, like Newfoundland and kind of really like deep into kind of Canada and stuff um, you know this was obviously before travel was so accessible um, and he's got some crazy stories from from those expeditions where he was going to look at rocks <laughs> and things so it's like <laughs> I, I kind of grew up with like the outdoors and adventure being like a huge part of of my life uh, which I feel very very fortunate for um, so you know, we'd come home from school and we'd our homework and then we'd be like like sent outside. So I'm one of four. So we'd all be sent outside into the garden no matter what the weather. <laughs> so we'd um you know we'd we'd always be be outside um and then at the weekends we'd go up on the hills and then you know kind of age you know nine ten I would then start going off by myself. Um, and I was kind of wild camping in Snowdonia and things by myself and kind of like at age 13, 14. Um, which is pretty cool really when I can think back on it and like my parents actually let me go off and do that (laughs) um yeah I think it was like it's always been a part of of my life so um you know and I think it's only more recently I realized like how fortunate I was you know and there's this big drive now to kind of spend more time outside because it's so recognized that like the wilderness and spending time outside in nature has such a sort of benefit for our mental health
1: Right, when, when you think back to that, do you sometimes go, I can't believe we were able to kind of explore in the way that we, we did from such a young age?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I feel very fortunate. Obviously, it's it's set me on my path, my career. I think, you know, a lot of people now, and now, particularly now, like when we've uh, got exposure to so many different op- opportunities and options that it can be really overwhelming. And I, I think, like, thankfully, you know, p- I'm sure, it's the same. Simply as obvious with the same age. It's like Facebook kind of started really kind of coming into my awareness when I was maybe sixteen or seventeen. But I remember like me and my friends were just like, well, "Who would want to look at what other people are eating for lunch?" That's <laughs> ridiculous. <Like, laughs> <laughs> so I like it wasn't until I was in New Zealand in my in my gap year. Um, that I actually joined Facebook because it was then a great way to be able to kind of share pictures from where I was, you know, with my family and kind of see what my family were up to as well. Um, and it became a kind of way of sharing. Uh, but I just think, wow, like if if that if social media and yeah. things when I was a kid like there's just too much information uh, and it must be so overwhelming I don't know how you figure out what you want to do because suddenly there's the world's like such a bigger place <laughs> and it's like our little like animal brains are just like too much stimulation oh. <laughs> can't cope
1: oh I think it's far more challenging to be a teenager now than it was in our years and now that makes us sound really old and I <laughs> always still think of myself as so youthful <laughs> but you know it, the world has changed so much. And My parents used to always say to me, things are so different. And I'm like, oh, whatever. And now I'm there. I'm like, oh, just 10 years ago, the world was so different. And so when you were kind of in New Zealand and you were getting into, you know, adventure in another part of the world, what was kind of, did you know very clearly what you wanted to do? Or was it kind of more exploration to try and kind of fall into the jobs that interested you more?
0: Um, I think it was actually more kind of going with the flow um yeah. i both my my parents had kind of come from uh quite kind of almost kind of rough backgrounds and they'd kind of they would made um you know they they chased academic careers and they would both done very well in those in those careers and i think it was assumed that because i was the oldest um uh, that i would follow suit and that i'd want to you know have followed the academic side of things um and although i did i did well at school i just really struggled like within a classroom within like four walls I really struggled to kind of sit still and focus, and I had this like panic that would arise in me, which I still get now. It's like if I'm stuck inside or stuck in one place for too long, it's just like this panic kind of rises. I'm like, I gotta get out of here, (laughs) Um, and I I felt that at school. And I was like, I was often like, I then it would kind of uh, manifest itself in not such great behavior, and I would often be sent out of the classroom uh, (laughs) and made to sit outside. I suppose um, going off to New Zealand and kind of going off. I didn't really know that careers outside of academia existed. Um, It kind of hadn't really been uh, kind of explained to me or shown to me um, that I could do anything else, really. So I think it was a bit of a surprise when I was out in New Zealand and I got out to New Zealand. Uh, And I, I'd got a job in a school and I, like after a couple of weeks, I've like making tea and photocopying, I was like, I'm not spending my 10 months doing this. (laughs) This sucks. Um, So I bought a little car, like I bought a little car for like $200. um, wow. Yeah. It was was an amazing little thing. And I drove off around New Zealand, kind of ran away. Um, And I I was in a bar one night and having a drink and these two guys came in, but I, they were about my age and they just started an apprenticeship in an outdoor centre. And there'd been like a third guy who just dropped out. So they were like, well, why don't you come and join us? Uh, So so I kind of, I got in touch with the person who ran this outdoor centre and they were like, yeah, come and join us for the 10 months. And like, you know, I started training as a raft guide and uh, taking people out what they call it. I don't know if you you guys call it in Australia, tramping as well. Oh yeah.
1: Like hiking, trekking.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like taking people out, like tramping or (laughs) trekking um into into the wilderness there um and it kind of it just made me realize that this kind of this was amazing um and uh, I ended up actually coming back to the UK then so while I was in New Zealand I then applied for a degree in outdoor studies <laughs> uh, mm. which I then came back to the UK to do which is basically three years of climbing on a student loan and <laughs> where I spent <laughs> I think my second year out in the Czech Republic um which is which for me was actually a, a I think it was another pivotal moment actually I think in my life because um, my my first year at university had had been like a lot of like me going out and doing like climbing and stuff for myself and finding all these incredible people that had a similar mindset to myself and I suddenly felt like wow this is these are my people this is my tribe mm. um, and then my second year I had did an Erasmus exchange like a European exchange um, to this to um, Charles University in Prague um, at the Czech Republic and that for me was amazing because they had kind of two very distinct styles of learning there. So they have um, kind of very, kind of repetitive, very hard skills focused. So I hadn't really done any open canoeing before then. And I remember them like taking me and it was the first time I'd been in an open canoe and they put me down like the white water slalom (laughs) like in the center of Prague. (laughs) And there's, there's no like, there's no barrier. There's no like kind of padding on any of this stuff. It's all quite concrete. And I like, I fell out on the first rapid and like literally just bounced off every, like flipping like barrier on the way down. And I tried to get out at one point and like, the instructor was like, no, get back in and like push me back in with this pole. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> but it said, cause after that, you know, you don't swim again, like because it flipping hurts. So it's like experiential education at its very best. So you learn to paddle very quickly. Um, and then the other side of the education, which I think kind of set me on my journey now is was like, um, the philosophy of outdoor education and the philosophy and psychology of why people go into the outdoors and that wilderness therapy uh, side of things as well, the kind of the therapeutic applications of spending time outside uh, in a very philo- philosophical way. And all our lectures were kind of uh, were spoken. So it was a lot of like very in-depth discussions about about this. Uh, and it really got me thinking um about that and I guess that kind of set me on like uh, when I came back to the UK for my third year of, of uni and then uh kind of it's kind of set me on my path of like I guess deep thinking about why we go outside and that's kind of been a huge part of I suppose my leadership style since as well
1: I love that because I'm half Czech so no um <laughs> yeah and i I had um Jessica Fox uh, Jess Fox on my podcast and she's an incredible uh, canoeist and she spends she says her greatest competition is the checks um, because they're just it's so much harder where they train and there's a certain certain type of mental attitude about what they do uh, which probably set you up so well for the fact that, you're not just doing adventures, you're creating the pathway for other people to be part of them. And there's that, like, really delicate balance of risk and dare and adrenaline with safety.
0: I guess sort of my, when I'm taking people on these expeditions, uh, it's like I want them to be part of the decision-making process. Uh, So sort of early on in my career, I used to do, like, a lot of youth expeditions, which is where I'd go away with, like, um, school groups uh, for For a month at a time to these you know these incredible places, maybe we'd go to Nepal and there'd be like a focus on going to climb some peak um or going off into you know jungles or wherever it might be um, and you know those experiences were I thought were absolutely brilliant like and it was a fantastic opportunity because I think so many young people um now because of the way the pressure on from um like our school life and achieving and things there's a lot of pressure on young people. Uh, to be constantly achieving and but in that same kind of time there also isn't the time necessarily for them to kind of express themselves or explore themselves in a different way Mm -hmm. um, and to take any responsibility or ownership over over their lives Um, and you know even from kind of getting themselves up in the morning you know often it's a parent or a caregiver that would do that and get them to school so they're not really taking any ownership of any of their daily actions um, so to take these kind of young people, so 16 to 18 year olds, off on these trips, um, and then what I'd do is like just hand over <laughs> all responsibility of the expedition to these young people. So I'd at the start I'd give them the budget. So you know maybe we'd have like 13,000 US dollars or something between us as, for the month, um, and that would include you know like the kind of trekking package with porters and Sherpas and stuff. And I'd just I'd hand it all over to them, and they'd have to figure out how to budget and then they would have to book accommodation um each day there would be a different leader so they'd have to take leadership during the day um and you know initially I always thought it was it was fascinating to watch because initially there was that excitement and kind of nervousness and then there was kind of like this kind of crash down of like oh my god what are we doing and it would usually involve kind of sitting down something would go wrong um, and they'd you know, they'd- they'd sit everybody down and there'd be like a shouting match and usually turned at myself and the school teacher be like how could you let this happen blah 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 and then uh, and then you just kind of sit there and just wait and then eventually it kind of would turn back to like hang on a minute this is our trip we've been given this responsibility what an amazing opportunity what should we do (laughs) Um, and it was just incredible every time seeing that kind of transition uh, and seeing them starting to take uh, ownership and responsibility and learning these life lessons so you know i remember on one trip we had um there there was like we'd we'd finished like the jungle trek uh, at some like kind of long house and there was a there was a bus that came through once every three days um and so the kids had booked the ticket for the bus uh but they'd forgotten to set the alarm and I was just like, well, I could get them up, and we could like, you know, we could all get on this bus and go to where we were going, um, or I could just let this play out and just let them, you know, sleep it, sleep through it, <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they, they get up and they they like, why didn't you tell us? And it's like, well, this is you know, this is your trip and this is your experience. And it's like, you know, what better way for somebody to learn like time management and actually taking ownership, you know, when <laughs> there are consequences to to your actions? Um, so I. Uh-huh. I yeah, I think that's kind of like in my leadership, even with adults as well now. So, you know, in, in on expeditions, I try to get my clients to be as autonomous as possible to, to be able to make decisions, to understand the decisions that I'm making as well. Um, there are moments, obviously, like I have to keep the client, um, instructor, leader, boundary and always be in a position where I can maintain final say in everything because there may be situations mm-hmm. when somebody's life's in danger where you're just like oh do this now and they have to do it uh, and then I'll explain my you know reasons later uh, but as much as possible through these trips I get my clients involved in like decision making processes and things so they can see my thought process as well and kind of understand it and be a part of that because I think people get far more out of that you know when they're part of that rather than just coming along on autopilot
1: Oh, they're such, a, all of that is such valuable skills, not just for children, but also for adults. And because, you know, we think that we're wired to succeed and even kids get it from a really young age, you've got to do really well, you've got to go here, you've got to do that, like boom, 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 that there's no space in there in their mind that they can have setbacks or fail. And the reality is, we know the older we get it's the setbacks and the fails that actually we grow the most from. They're the, when we look back on our time, we don't always look at the rosy things. We're like, you know, that moment where I face this huge hurdle um, and this is how I worked through it. Like that's a defining moment.
0: It's so true. It's so true. It is funny what you say about like remembering no stories because I think like the adventure industry is like the only industry where we sensationalise failure and like massive fuck-ups. <laughs> <laughs> it's bizarre isn't it like people earn so much money out of like telling their stories of their massive like
1: mistakes
0: it's like can you imagine oh. any other industry where people were like ah whoops
1: <laughs> you actually wrote about something on your instagram where you kind of wrote um you I think you wrote it recently but you were referring to a couple of years ago and you said we are three months into one of the strangest jobs I've ever had we are working 18 hours a day at 5,000 meters our hosts, from time to time, are refusing to give us food and water. Our movements are being monitored, including daily room searches and hacked computers. I've never felt political power so strongly before, and feel the knowledge that you could vanish. I was like, that's a story megan <laughs> that's a story
0: <laughs> yeah we were um, I was consulting for um for uh, yeah for a company um that we were making like adventure films um yeah in China and they were they'd invited us in to kind of to make these yeah to help them and consult them on like how to make these shows uh but it was the most bizarre situation (laughs) it's like we um we arrived in country and they were like oh yeah we're just going to be like a couple of hours from the airport and we got loaded onto this bus and it's like 14 hours later (laughs) we're still on this bus and we're suddenly like at some border crossing and we're like Oh my goodness they're taking us into Tibet. <laughs> um, so they, they we ended up being um being taken into Tibet where like we were we you know we didn't know anything about this but we were like it was some sort of like political statement that they were making and like the area that we'd we were in um had only recently opened up to to China ra- um you know, let alone kind of like Westerners. Um, mm. So it was, yeah, it was quite an exciting experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> and We were told, you know, we were told not to, by our local kind of in-country fixer, um, you know, not to have too much like communication with the locals uh, because they, I mean, the local people were lovely. They were so, so lovely. Um, but if we had too much communication with them, they were worried that they would disappear um, we we had members of the Chinese crew kidnapped at gunpoint. Um, yeah, the it would seem like every time that you know we were there to help help them make these shows and things, but they would keep bringing us these problems, which we would then solve, which would, they would then kind of. Uh, a twist and make into these even bigger problems and it was just it was a very very bizarre <laughs> situation um so we'd be up like we'd be woken up at like all hours of the, the night to to come into meetings and things um and then yeah and then we were they withheld like food and water uh on like quite a few occasions <laughs> and so we were trying to sneak out trying to get get water but you know it, all the all all programming like tv programming um is controlled by the the, the government there um, and you know they they tell like the people population and stuff what they can and can't watch um, so it's all very very regulated um, and it's kind of being suddenly part of a you know part of this and not having this huge political power uh, kind of watching you. Um, and you know, not so subtly, you know, breaking into your room or like when you're out, like going through all your stuff. And it's like you know, they weren't even subtle about it. They'd go through all our stuff and search all our stuff, and they'd like log, log into our computers or hack into our computers. Um, and you can see it. You can see people going through, <laughs> through your computers and through your emails. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was very, very bizarre. And I, I don't, I still now to this day don't understand really what was going on there or why why we were treated that way but we'd got we got to the point where we actually um, I was out there with them with Stani again and we actually got to the mm-hmm. point where uh, we we'd built uh this kind of escape plan um and how we were going to get out but then you realize even with like it was quite a small crew we had out there even with like a small crew like you know how at risk we are and how obvious we are and how hard that would have been to kind of to get out but we had got to the point where we were actually thinking that we would have to instigate it
1: Oh, there's probably mics on you capturing all your plans anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're attuned to, um, you know, the global, um, I guess, politics, you're, you're probably aware of these situations um, going into it, but the reality of experiencing it, um, what it actually feels like, would be entirely different.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, we live in a very liberal society, you know, as, you know, we're very, very fortunate in the societies and the cultures that that we live in. That, uh, you know, that we do have freedom of speech. That we do, we feel like whether it's true or not, <laughs> you know, we feel like we're part of of something, um, and we feel like we're relevant and uh, important in our own ways. Uh, but when you, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you realize actually you're not at all. You're quite irrelevant, mm-hmm. and actually you could disappear very quickly and nobody would really ask any questions um, and you know you suddenly realise like how <laughs> how unimportant you are as an individual uh, so it's that's, that's quite good. I think that's quite like humbling because, you know, I also find that in, um, you know, in wilderness environments as well. You know, when when I'm out you know in, in a vast jungle or in a vast mountain environment and you realize, you know, you're just this tiny little speck <laughs> in this massive environment. And, you know, it's, it's very humbling. And I actually, you know, I actually really enjoy feeling that uh, and that humility. And I think it keeps keeps the ego in check for sure.
1: I mean, you've gone to some very off the beaten track places, you know, places where, you know, um, you know, Western people have never been seen. Um, Can you tell me about some of those experiences and how you cope um, when people are very wary of you?
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting experience, and I, I think it's it's an amazing experience being in a minority. You know, being a minority in in these these places, um, and yeah, I've been very very fortunate, uh, particularly through the filming uh, work that we've worked in places that uh, that you know no other westerners have been to, uh, no tourists have been to um so you're very very fortunate to to be able to gain access to these places uh and you know for me it's really important to maintain that that respect you know when i'm working in places where you know like in in the amazon and it's like you know we work they call them uncontacted tribes um i mean the reality is obviously we're there and we've we we're in contact with them, um, but when, when you kind of you know working in these environments, like you know, I did a job a couple of years ago out in out in the Amazon. I spent three months out in the Amazon, uh, living and working out there, and that was incredible because you're up in these places and you're interacting, you know, with with native tribes and native peoples. Um, and you realize like how culturally different you are and it's like you're not quite mm-hmm. sure of what the etiquette is and you know that these people like still practice cannibalism <laughs> and it's yeah. you know you don't know what's going to trigger them and what I found really fascinating you know, is like one kind of tribe in particular that I remember that we interacted with and they were very like childlike, like not childish, but like very childlike in their in their way of interacting with the world. So they were very kind of like they just go with their emotions. And I, in a way, it was really beautiful because they obviously hadn't got the same structure of society that, you know, and pressures that we put on ourselves to kind of contain ourselves in these little boxes and not show emotions and express ourselves um and these guys, you know, if you if these guys got angry, they would they would express it. If they they were sad, they would cry, um, you know, and they'd laugh. And it was it was kind of beautiful. And it was like like watching, you know, young children uh, interact. Um and it but you know, in those scenarios, because it's a very different, it's like an alien culture, and you don't know what's going to trigger them. And again, you're you're very, very remote. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't take much for you know to inadvertently piss them off. Uh, And find yourself in a very awkward situation, Uh, you know, which I think is is what like a lot of travellers, you know, have done in the past and have kind of interacted. In, in a you know in a in a way inadvertently kind of upset local peoples and then you know kind of not not returned from from those trips so having that awareness and for me when I'm working when I'm taking expeditions out and you know on the film work as well it's it's really you can't beat local knowledge and you know working mm. with local people so having local guides with you as well uh, and translators and things it goes a long way to kind of trying to minimise that kind of um,
1: cultural differences. I mean, I mean, that's kind of, it's a privilege in many respects to be able to have been privy to that, to a culture that you're, that is so different to what you know. But at the same time, it must be confronting in times not knowing that if certain behaviours you display are going to be received in a way that you don't intend
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, this is part of what drives me with it as well as that kind of excitement (laughs) and that like kind of risk element as well. Um, But yeah, yeah, I I am always trying to be culturally sensitive because there are so many, you know, every culture is very different in, you know, what is allowed and isn't allowed. You know, so in some cultures, stepping over somebody's outstretched legs is like, is a no-go. Touching somebody on the head is really rude and you just don't know. And um, I remember this story from, um, I think it was a Borneo, um, and uh, some some girl was at the top of a mountain, and took her top off, uh, you know, and got a selfie like with her boobs out, and uh, and then <laughs> the following day there was this massive earthquake, um, and she was arrested because the locals thought that she defended the local mountain gods, um, you know. So I think yeah, as Westerners and you know as as people with kind of you know relative kind of affluence you know, we take travel and take adventure and things now for granted. Um, Mm. And we forget that it's actually a luxury. And actually, you know, when we're going into these other cultures, they're not commodities, you know, they're not like live exhibitions. These are real people living their real lives. Um, And we have to respect that and, you know, doing research into a culture before you go is is key and it's like i can't really understand why people travel and don't do that because surely a huge part of like going to that country or going to that environment is about that about the local culture as well it's not just about kind of you know going to get your perfect instagram selfies next to that beautiful waterfall it's like also that interaction with the local local people as well um and you know there's loads of travel blogs for anybody listening in who wants to do more traveling and go to these places you know reading travel blogs talking to local peoples local guiding companies uh, and like getting that information so you know so you can have that incredible like and rich uh, kind of relationship with with native peoples or
1: local peoples as you're traveling a hundred percent agree with what you're saying right now and it's definitely what's what interests me about adventure and travel and it's in that preparation phase where it's not just about the physical in fact I've always said like the physical preparation is just like one third of the lead-in to any project that I do the most significant embedded work that I do is trying to get an understanding for where I'm going to go with the reality that from afar my understanding will never be real but it'll at least set me in a path to having a better you know understanding And connecting with people who live on the ground, um, reading what I can, it also builds up that excitement and that appreciation and it doesn't necessarily shock you when you see certain types of, you know, behaviours being played out because you sometimes understand where they come from. And if you think right now that there's such a restriction of us travelling, maybe there will, we will actually return to a greater sense of um, respect and gratefulness of being able to have mobility again.
0: I really hope so. I do hope so.
1: (laughs) I hope so. I know, it it could go the other way and people could just go crazy and be taking their tops off on every mountain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, offending all the local mountain gods.
1: (laughs) You've entered a career path that is, I'd say, predominantly made up of men, uh, probably back at least when you were starting to enter into it, and even a significant portion of those are from a military background. Did you ever feel that that would be a barrier for you entering into this space or was it something just wasn't a consideration for you?
0: When I first started, I didn't think about it. Uh, gender for me really has become more of a thing recently. Uh, when I first started, like I was just following my path. I loved climbing. I loved mountain biking. I loved spending time outside. So that's what I was going to do. <laughs> like nothing was going to stop me. Um, and my, um, you know, as, as you'll know, like my gender doesn't affect my performance. Um You know, uh, and, you know, yes, okay, in general, you know, women are maybe not as strong as men, but we find another way around that. You know, we use our brains and we find mm-hmm. a different way around it. Um, and, you know, we find a way of overcoming things in, in a different way. Um, so my gender for me, like on a personal level, in terms of my uh, performance and my um, getting into kind of the outdoors and adventure pursuits and things uh, was was never a question for me. It was never an issue at all. Um, I think it's, it's come up more recently. I've, obviously, it's become like a big... Uh, topic of uh, discussion like globally as well um, that's made me become more aware of it I guess it's I suppose when I think back on it, it's a bit strange really that I never really thought about it like a lot of my I was in the military cadets when I was uh in my teens um, and there were no other girls and I never really thought about it and I never thought about it you know, when I started working either and when I was going out and playing and I was always climbing with guys and kind of mountaineering with guys and stuff, I never thought about it. It I was just doing my thing. Um, And I suppose it's more recently that I've really realized that it is is a bit of an, an issue. And I guess the kind of higher up the career ladder I I travel and I guess become more of a more of a threat to other people or a competition to other other people. It becomes uh, more of an issue, um, and it's kind of it's quite sad, really. I think that it's still a problem now, and I kind of I fluctuate between you know still feeling like real frustration over that, um, and you know, and I suppose anger at times for how it can hold me back or how you know other people hold me back because of it, um, and the excitement of kind of trailblazing as well, because every single one of us, male or female is kind of trailblazing at the moment, like a new normal uh, in terms of like gender roles, uh, because, you know, as the female gender role evolves, so too does the male one. And we have to work together, you know, to kind of normalize things because, you know how, like when I'm on the road so much of the year, and my work relies on travel and things. You know, how on earth would I fit a family around that? And you know, as a freelancer and things, there's no, you know, no financial support for for that either. Uh, you know, so these things are kind of stuff that we're as a society and as a culture on a global level are trying to figure out, you know, how we kind of have those traditional things and how we create this norm where, you know, women can be have equality with uh, finances, with positions in, in work um, and, and still have the family and things. And it's, you know, it's, it's very hard to get that balance. And <laughs> at times it can be, you know, kind of heartbreaking as well.
1: I mean, I don't know if we can get the balance, to be honest. And thinking that we can is maybe what's holding us back. And I think, I mean, I, I experience it too as a as an athlete, um, someone who's a corporate speaker, who, someone who's an adventurer and is traveling all the time. And I, I now have a husband, uh, and I have a child. Um, and you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast know that I didn't plan to have a child. Uh, my husband and I felt pregnant about six weeks after knowing each other, and it. Totally changed the trajectory of our lives after meeting on a reality TV show, which makes it sound even more hilarious. Um, (laughs) But we were in career paths and identities of who we were that was totally incongruent with the idea of being parents. And we always thought we would, you know, independently, we always thought we'd be kind of have a child, but we just didn't see how it would fit, as you're kind of saying now, like that freelance, you know, independent workforce that requires you to kind of go, go, go. And when can you actually take time to stop to have a child? Uh, and I guess many respects, I've sometimes said, oh, I'm so happy I accidentally fell pregnant because it kind of allowed me to have it. But I, now we keep talking about, well, when are we going to have a second child? And it's like this balance of, well, I'd like to do this race and I'd like to do this trip and I'm at physical performance right now and you're kind of juggling and the reality is there's no right time. Um, there's no perfect solution. You, you do just make it work. Uh, and I always say to myself, like people with far less skills and far less money uh, and far less stability have done this and done it well. And it's, I think that's comforting uh, many times over and uh story. Yeah. <laughs> and rant
0: <laughs> no it's no, no, not at all because I think it's so fascinating you know to, to to have you know you know somebody like yourself you know who's obviously so driven um and and has this incredible career and is an athlete as well and you know I think a lot of people underestimate like the amount of time it takes you know to train you know you don't just roll out of bed in the morning and go and do these races there's so much preparation no. and time and everything that goes into that and it's like, how do you balance that family as well? So I think it's it's so inspirational. And there'll be women listening in who are just like, you know, kind of got to the age, you know, because you do get to your, you know, 30s if you haven't had a family already. And there, there is, most women will go through that process of like questioning, is it something that you want to do? And it's like, you know, for many of us, it's like, it doesn't seem like it's a possibility to, to have your story and to hear your story is really heartwarming It gives gives hope, I think, to, to a lot of,
1: you know, to a lot of women. Oh, I said to one of my girlfriends the other day, "Your life can change like that, (laughs) like literally." (laughs) I remember that moment still to this day. And you know, for you, and you don't have to answer if it's you know feels too personal. But are you feeling like it just isn't possible with a lifestyle that one you've created and two that you enjoy?
0: yeah so it's, it's a funny one it's like I mean, it's really nice actually to have this discussion you know because I think a lot of people tend to avoid it because it's like well we wouldn't ask a man that so why would we ask a woman and it's like well actually, I actually thought I, I wouldn't because would like of that women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's actually getting guys to start thinking about this um I, it's, I think for me it's become a topic that's really kind of been playing in my mind for the past couple of years um because of my career and it's like you know I've put my career first and um i didn't really think about it i suppose in my 20s i was like oh, i've got plenty of time and you know maybe it was also because i grew up in a family where you know it was very traditional it's like you you know you went to school you finished school you went to university you met somebody you got married you had your family <laughs> and that was that was kind of like what was going to happen you know there was no argument that was going to happen at some point and then maybe in my 20s I was kind of rebelling against that because I thought it was inevitable and then I hit my 30s and it's like suddenly like it's like oh actually maybe it's not inevitable (laughs) these things don't always just fall into place Um, and it's actually I suppose you know now at kind of 36 it's like you know I'm aware of the fact in theory, you know, I've still got a few years and things, but you know, it's something that I need to make the decision on over the in the next couple of years if it's something that I want to do, if it's even possible. Um, and it's like, well, how does that look, and how do you make that work, um, you know, with my lifestyle, and how do I alter, you know, my lifestyle so that that could. Could I could actually still financially support that um, and not lose too much of my independence. And, you know, I, I don't know the answer, <laughs> but I think like you, like, you know, if it's meant to be, it'll just, you know, it'll happen at at some point. Um, and, you know, if not, it's kind of coming to terms with that, um, that, you know, being happy, if, if it's not something that I do in the next couple of years, then it's probably not going to happen. And, you know, that I need to then just come to terms with that and be happy with that and find another way of kind of, I suppose, that very maternal side of that most women will have inbuilt that can be like that energy can be directed elsewhere? Mm.
1: I think the older I get, the more I realise that our pathways are all just so unique and we're all kind of facing that, as a, as a female, um, that challenge of how we, you know, balance what people say. You can have everything and the reality is you can't always have everything or at least you can't have everything at the same time. Um, And my sister, who's currently here right now, she's two years older than me. So she's 37 and she's just had her first child, um, you know, after being with her partner for 16 years and now she's single. And, you know, she wasn't particularly maternal and she didn't think she could fall pregnant. And then it just happened um, after saying it, she couldn't for so long, even going through the IVF process. A process, and then she, you know, fell pregnant naturally. Even you know, we shouldn't use the word naturally, but she fell pregnant without IVF, and it's changed her. And she's an engineer, and um, you know, highly kind of like scientific and clinical. And she said to me today for the first time that she could almost see herself not going back to work. Now she is going to go back to work in November, but she did just say like the way her brain has changed in its wiring and in construct and desire and what she feels is important has fundamentally changed since having a child and her, and her priorities have shifted just quite naturally um, through that. And so I just think that there, there's no definitives. What we grew up thinking was the normal process or the journey that we would have as women and then as mothers or as professionals is just is different for all of us and that's completely okay.
0: It's so Jo, it's really it's so nice hearing her story and I think this is a, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear, I think this is what's missing, isn't it? Like we need to hear more stories like this and from like a broad spectrum of, of women from different uh, backgrounds and different careers paths as well. So that you know there's we can all relate to those stories and like stories of you know why women have chosen to have a family or not to have a family or you know it's happened by accident. You know, I, th- I think like these conversations should be had. We shouldn't feel like ashamed or scared of having these conversations and to get guys involved as well <laughs> to be more aware of you know taking ownership as well of, of these, these Decisions
1: too. Ah, oh, and, and I speak to you know adventurers and, um, and and athletes quite a bit, and I also speak to people who are in more pro- professional, conventional career paths as well. But it's a conversation that I try and have with men too. But it's it's a different reality in a sense because the man's body doesn't have to obviously go through what the female's body have to go through. So the journey and the story is quite different and the fact that, um, you know, really a a guy can, um, you know, have their partner fall pregnant at any age for them, but it's a different issue for for women as well. So there's just different considerations. Uh, And I do think, uh, I'm 100% with you, we have to be comfortable to start having conversations about things that we feel there is a stigma about, such as mental health, anxiety, stress, um, because that's the only way that we move through it and we start to normalise it. Absolutely.
0: And I think this is where, like, social media and things can be so powerful. I think it's got its negatives, but I think it also has its amazing positives as well in that, you know, when uh, when we were growing up, because we didn't have that social media, there wasn't so much access to role models or people who were similar to us. And, you know, I know because I of, you know, the... Uh, activities that I was enjoying, like I enjoyed doing. So, you know, getting out and mountain biking and climbing and things. I, you know, I didn't know any other girls that were into that. Whereas now, you know, if you, you know, whatever your interests are, you'll find other people, you'll find your little community and your little tribe on social media. And I think this is so powerful and it, you know, and it helps have those conversations about mental health or, you know, whatever specific, you know, mental illness you might be going through. You can find people that are going through similar and have had success stories and positivity as well. Because uh, I think the rest of, the the internet it's like you know when when you've mm-hmm. got something going on whether it's physically or emotionally and you google it it's like all these horror stories come up oh. because people only really go and write stuff when they feel like shit whereas you know if you go on social media then you've got people who are kind of documenting their lives and they're documenting the mm-hmm. highs and lows um, so you get a better balance of you know what that person's going through which is easier to kind of relate to and make you feel happier as well i think in, in what you're dealing with
1: Oh, and you have to be selective in the curation of information that you expose yourself to. And no one is forcing you to follow, you know, negative people, positive people, people, you know, you can choose the the portal of information that is in front of you every single day in your news feed. And so I say you should do that with um, responsibility and care and consideration because it does affect how you feel about yourself and how you move throughout your day so often. I wish it didn't, but the reality is it does to so many people. And and a topic that I did want to talk about with you is, you know, have you felt that you've ever needed to either moderate or expand um, either your masculine or your feminine energies in your job?
0: Yeah, when I first started, I was kind of trying to hide my femininity, I suppose. Uh, There was a lot of, um, you know, because there weren't any other female instructors, um, particularly like in the bushcraft and survival industry, that I felt like I had to behave like one of the guys. And those were that was the only role models. And the only kind of exposure I had was to instructional styles or leadership styles was by watching men. Um, mm. And it, you know, I, and I think I also ended up Having to work a lot harder to get the same sort of recognition, which in in a way when I was you know, I kind of did an apprenticeship in bushcraft and survival uh, for several years, and you know I, I noticed that with clients that would come in they would talk to my male colleagues before they would talk to me um and ask for advice and it's like I found myself actually working a lot harder than you know my male colleagues on the same level um because I had to you know actions always speak louder than words and like you know kind of proving myself so I had to make sure that my skills were super strong to then be able to kind of gain the same sort of respect or the people then coming to me and asking me Stuff So in a way, <laughs> I think it was a positive thing because it allowed me to kind of progress very, very quickly, like with my skills. Um, and that was in like kind of all avenues of kind of a, a, the adventure and outdoor pursuits. So that was that was a real positive uh, in a way. Um I think, you know, even now, to some extent, it's like I have to moderate or I feel like I have to moderate like my femininity and uh, like not expressing myself too much like sexually uh, because it can detract from. Uh, from the, you know, the job that I'm trying to do. If I'm if I'm heading up a team, it's like I want them to focus on the job. I don't want there to be any kind of confusion over anything else, um, which can be quite frustrating at times. And, you know, I notice uh, when I'm working in certain cultures, it's like my male colleagues will be having a laugh and, you know, having drinks and stuff with the locals. Whereas it's much harder for me to do that because as soon as I step out of that kind of serious professional thing it's like instantly like they see me on a different different level um, and it's also kind of like a safety uh thing in some environments as well you know when I'm working in certain environments in certain cultures where women just aren't considered equal then you know you do have to kind of really kind of um alter you know your behavior and how you react with the world and and the image and things that that I put put out there um, but I think as I'm getting older I'm kind of starting to care less about that <laughs> and it's something that actually I'm kind of starting to explore more now is kind of is that femininity and you know why why should I not be wearing pink when I'm performing at the same level you know if not higher than the guys
1: <laughs> yeah but maybe we feel that we need before we have built up that credibility and experience we have to and it sounds terrible toe the line a bit to get to that place and then once we're there we can like play with who we truly are and it 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 is frustrating that that has to be a consideration and I remember I once presented on stage to an audience and I was wearing a a dress and I yeah I guess it was a little tight and I got off stage a a female told me uh, I said oh what did you think she goes yes it was good but if you didn't wear that dress people would have listened to you more and ever since then it's just been on my mind you know, the clothes that I wear when I'm up on stage. Like, I want people to listen to my content. Like, you know, I, I don't care what they, if I think I'm, you know, attractive or whatever it is. Uh, the main reason I get up to present is because I want to share a story and I want to connect with people. And so that's th- the main obje- objective. I want to do my job well. And so if what I'm wearing is impacting that, of course it's a consideration for me. But it is frustrating that that has to be a factor.
0: It's so true. I think things are starting to change. It's like I've seen like mm-hmm. a lot of like moves in in Hollywood. You know, particularly around some of like the more established actresses. I mean, you look at like what Reese Witherspoon's doing, uh, Nicole yeah. Kidman, uh, Margot Robbie, like all these uh, incredible. Um, you know, actresses that are kind of coming together and uniting to kind of change things. Um, And I think that that's really, really powerful. And we've seen like a lot more, um, you know, movies and things now coming out with female uh, leads and, you know, tough female leads that are actually starting to become Mm. a lot more believable. You know, it's not like the original kind of Tomb Raider uh, computer game (laughs) shaped figures. (laughs) You know, it's actually more realistic, Uh, you know, female Uh, personas and things that are are being shown on on tv on on in these movies which i think is is a great start because that's that's how we normalize things is like change happens very slowly and it's only by people you know kind of sowing those little seeds and those images becoming normality that things will then actually really change
1: so when are we going to be seeing you head up a survivalist series (laughs)
0: well i mean i i do get quite a lot of offers for like in front of camera stuff um but i'm just not interested unless it's like the right project um i mean i've been in talks with uh production companies and channels uh for years now um not not just for for me to be in front of camera but for like getting more women in front of camera and you know at the moment there still is that issue that. Uh, women in general. I know probably the people listening to this uh, podcast will be like, what? <laughs> but that's because we're kind of all adventurous people who like this stuff anyway. But like the general um, audience and like the general like viewer Um, female viewer isn't really interested in like adventure and stuff or hasn't been Uh, so like the big question is like how do we target those women and draw those women into watch without alienating the male audience as well Uh, which is a really really hard balance to get and nobody yet has the answer though there's a lot of discussions and there's some actually really exciting projects because I get sent a lot of Uh, pitches to look through uh, that are involving women um, and kind of I've been working on various shows kind of remotely like kind of helping develop these shows uh, for women as well so it's really exciting it is getting there we just haven't quite got the the balance right yet.
1: And I think you almost won't get the balance right until you start playing with it like start playing with the content putting it out Um, because part of it is is exposing audiences to that female archetype or multiple female archetypes in those environments,
0: and I think the, the the problem that we face is that because there's so many networks and there's so many so much competition that um, you know particularly like the more traditional networks, uh, if they if they commission the wrong show um, or put money into the wrong show, they they could be um, really shooting themselves in the foot, which is one of the reasons again why a lot of um, channel a lot why we're not seeing a lot more new content because and we see a lot of recycled stuff you know so I like I've been working um like in the survival industry so i've been working on shows like you know since like kind of the man versus wild shows uh, with bear grills which was like kind of what set, set his career off uh and a lot of the shows that have been made since in the survival sphere are kind of a very are based on that format uh and the formats that you know that we've then been creating on other shows with him since and then a lot of other a lot of um you know, shows just copy that format because it's a recipe that works and they know that they're going to get viewers. Whereas they actually, it's very hard for these networks to take a risk. I wish they would, and I'm hoping it will change, but it's very hard <laughs> for them to take that risk uh, financially. Um, yeah, which is, which is quite frustrating, but, but it, will, it will happen. We, we need like, you know, Netflix, who've got a lot of money or like Amazon to start taking, taking risks with this or kind of independent companies as well.
1: Well, in many respects, um, I mean, I don't know if you watched the World's Toughest Race, but a lot of the hero stories were females who were, you know, the one female in a team of four, uh, and they. I feel like that show really did put an emphasis on on the female journey. Uh, which was great to watch because you don't get to see that all the time. Um, you don't get to see the female adventurer being celebrated uh, as much, and for uh, the vulnerability, for the strength, and for it to all, to all to both be successful and both be applauded.
0: That yeah, it's great. It's so great to hear that like producers are starting to take risks with that. That's yeah, because it's the way it should be and i think you'll start drawing in more audiences particularly like if you start looking at like the
1: kind of the mental aspect of of these things as well it's yeah it's my, it's very appealing you know you before said that um, a man and a female they besides the potentially slightly lesser strength you know we can both function the same but let's talk about menstruation for a moment, because I think there is this myth that when we have our periods, we just get on with it and let's pretend that it doesn't happen or at least it doesn't affect us. But at least from myself personally and from a lot of you know, female athletes that I've spoken to, it actually does affect us, uh, sometimes significantly. Have you found in the work that you've done, um, having your period potentially when you're working remotely, um, that it has an impact on you?
0: Um, yeah, it does. Definitely. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, it can be quite frustrating. Um, well, I think definitely a couple of days before, it's like, I'm like, my emotions are all over the place. I can be really grumpy. And I always forget as well. I'm just like, ah, I hate the world. <laughs> These sites, <laughs> like, they're, they're really annoy me. Um, and then I realise that actually uh, it was just PM, PMS, PMT, um, and it's, yeah, it's causing like those emotional uh, changes. Um, I suppose mm. I don't let... You know the physical, the physical aspects of it. I don't let that really affect me too much. Um, I just accept it for what it is. Um, I, you know, I've, I've been working in the outdoors for for, for most of my life, um, and. I, you know, I guess it would just hold me back otherwise. I mean, I guess you just have to be more prepared. Uh, so I do a lot of work in like, with like water safety and in water and stuff. And so, you know, <laughs> being prepared and, you know, making sure that you've got the right right stuff with you <laughs> for the moment. Yep. Um, and when, you know, when accidents do happen, it's like, you know, then trying to just be like kind of laugh it off and try not to think too much about it and just kind of being like, meh, it's just natural. You know, the guys, they mm. just need to get on with it and, you know. Try not, try not to think too much about it. But I know for for a lot of women that it is it is a really intimidating prospect. Um, you know, menstruating in in the outdoors. Um. And, you know, I, th- I think it's, you know, acceptance is a huge part of that. So it's like I say this to like clients when I'm taking them into, you know, for example, like the jungle, it's like, you know, you know you're going to be wet. Like it's a really wet environment, whether it's sweat or whether it's, you know, from the rain, you're going to be wet. And the sooner that you accept that, you know, the better, the quicker that you then remove that kind of frustration or upset or stress from you and you just then look for practical ways of overcoming it and it's the same with with menstruation as well you know it's a fact it's a fact of life um you know i i do see women who are coming on expeditions who start taking the pill just before the trip uh, in the hope that it will stop their periods for the you know for the duration of the trip but if you are going to do that uh, make sure that you do it like months and months in advance of your trip um i Otherwise, what I've just kind of seen it happen to a few women that actually it has the reverse effect, and they end up having a period for like two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. so fun. um so yeah so you know if you, if you are thinking about you know going off on an adventure and thinking that you're going to take the pill beforehand um yeah make sure that you do it like months in advance um but the reality is you know it's four or five days um and you know it's only really a, unless you're very unfortunate it's only really a few few of those days that it's really heavy and then you know things like uh moon cups or various other brands that kind of make the similar thing to the moon cup um there's like um she thinks is like a, is a brand of like kind of kind of padded underwear, which you know r- removes the need for sanitary towels, which is amazing for me. Like when I'm traveling in in, in cultures and countries that don't sell that, you know, and it's just an underpant that you can then just take and you can wash wash it out every night, dry it, and you know you can put it back on again. Uh, and I always have a few of those with me, and that's those are amazing. Um, and for the for the environmental side of things as well, it's out there absolutely fantastic.
1: I, so one, it's so interesting you say about the acceptance because, you know, even if you try and prepare for it to not happen, the reality is your body is in control, not you. And so you still may get it. Um, I have now discovered about myself through experience that I will always get my period um, during an adventure race, even if I've just had it the week before. Whatever it is, the lack of sleep, the intensity, the prolonged nature of just moving, it somehow trips my cycle to thinking that I've lived a month and I always get it. Uh, and I just, people are always like, well, how do you deal with it when you're in the middle of an adventure race? And you know, like I just have learned to tell them, like I sometimes, I don't even stop sometimes. I, sorry for any guys who are listening, but you know, you might adventure race and you don't need to know this, that I'll sometimes just drop behind the guys that I'm racing with and I'll literally just change a tampon and like pack one up and put it in my pack and not even stop. Because it's just, you learn to deal with it. It's a part of wanting to be an adventure racer and being female and not hating yourself for going through something that is the most natural thing that happens to our bodies. And I'm always going, well, I'm grateful that I can still get my period, even though I'm pushing my body really hard. So it's a healthy sign that my body is still functioning well.
0: That's so fascinating. I wonder what the reasons are behind. Oh, I don't
1: know. It is a little frustrating. <laughs> I try and see the positive side of it, but I'm like, why? I remember once on the final day of a race, we just we were doing this like last kayak and I all of a sudden knew, oh, my goodness, I've just got my period and I got to the finishing line and everyone's clapping and, all, and I'm just like, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't have time. I don't have time and I hope people aren't looking down. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just, I mean, that's the cool thing of, I mean, you would experience a similar thing with your production team as I'm sure I experience with my teammates when I'm racing that you become a family uh, and you share this intense experience and, you know, you talk about topics that you would never normally talk about um, in kind of probably everyday life with people that you just kind of share more pedestrian experiences with um, and you just kind of don't care about that stuff.
0: No, I I think it's just, again, it's that, yeah, kind of, it doesn't matter. There's like, you know, when you're really kind of pushing yourself and it's like, you know, if you're pushing yourself really, really hard in an adventure race, it's like your body is fighting for survival. It's going through that. You've got far more important things to think about in that moment (laughs) than (laughs) the fact that you've got your period or, you know, or did you leave the kettle on or like the cooker on or whatever. (laughs) Um, You know, you're you're not thinking about that stuff and it doesn't matter. And it becomes, like you said, it becomes normal to talk about those things things you know there's so many trips it's like you know when I've been on ski tour trips and things and you're roped up to you know I'm roped up to guys like either side of me and you're skiing across a glacier it's like you really need to go to the toilet and it's just like well you're just gonna (laughs) drop your trousers and just go for a shit right there and you just have to to laugh about it because it's a natural part of (laughs) of and then you just laugh about it and it's like you know guys laugh about these things and make fun of each other about these things so you know we as women just need to stop being so sensitive about you know our natural body rhythms
1: yeah I think the idea of it when you're removed from the experience sounds far more confronting than when you're in it and you just realize well I've really got no other option like I need to go to the toilet so what's my option drop pants do it and it becomes much more this primal survival bodily reaction as opposed to embarrassment shame or you know I can't do that because girls don't do that you just kind of strip all that back to the essentials of you know human behavior
0: yeah, otherwise you end up like that poor girl I had in Indonesia uh, <laughs> and you have to have some nurse, like, stick their arms up there and pull it all out.
1: <laughs> what I've always loved about the adventure world is the desexualization and kind of sometimes the gender neutrality of just like we're, you know, humans who are doing something in nature, something that we love to do.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think when you're pushing yourself really hard, it's like, you know, you're not necessarily... Yeah, you but know, you're thinking about things in a different way. Things become much more primal and animalistic, and yeah, I mean, it can be it can be quite interesting um, that the relationship that develops between you and you know your you know the people that you're working in those environments
1: with. Well, then let's kind of shift it into a slightly different tone, as opposed to where we've been, and and talk about the idea of like burning the candle at both ends, because I think something that we've both also shared is. We push hard. We, we've both pushed very hard for the things that we've wanted and there does come to be a cost at that even if we really, really don't want it. And I've seen kind of like that play out um, via your social media and the storytelling that you know, you've given where there's moments where you talk about the beauty in exhaustion as that being the state in which you feel alive. And then I also read a blog where you talked about having um, issues with your thyroid uh, and having to really kind of consider the restorative nature that your body needs in order to perform. Um, do you feel comfortable kind of talking about that?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the thyroid side of things. That I have um, an autoimmune disease uh, called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is where it's not really my it's not really my thyroid. It's like my immune system attacks my thyroid gland. And I had a period, oh gosh, it used to be like seven or eight years ago now, um, where I was just, I was really, really tired. And I was, I hate going to the doctor. I hate admitting that there's anything wrong with me. Uh, And I went into the doctors on a couple of occasions, like telling them that I was really tired. um, And, you know, on both occasions, they just told me that, um, that it was my lifestyle and, you know, being on the road all the time and, you know, being in these environments and things. Uh, that i needed to sleep Uh, but i knew that there was something wrong so i kind of i started investigating myself and i started taking uh, spirulina uh, Mm -hmm. which is like a green algae Uh, and within a couple of weeks i developed this massive lump in my throat um, which started started blocking my windpipe and suddenly like the doctors took me (laughs) seriously uh, and thought Mm -hmm. i had um thought i had thyroid cancer um so they actually went in and removed that. It turned out it didn't have cancer, but um, it, was, <laughs> it was an exciting few weeks. Um, and yeah, and then diagnosed me with, um, with this thyroid condition, which basically causes my thio- causes me to be underactive, like my thyroid to be underactive because my immune system's attacking it. Um, and it was, in a way, it was quite a relief. In, on one level, it was a relief to know that there was something wrong and... Um, you know, at the same time, it's really frustrating, you know, knowing that there's this, you know, it's not something that you can cure. Um, it's something you can maybe put into remission um, and you can manage. Um, but, it, you know, it's quite frustrating knowing, and very upsetting knowing that it was there and that I'm stuck with it but at the same time, it's like, I've never known so much about my body. Um, and I've, you know, I used to, when I was kind of first started guiding and things, I really didn't look after myself in terms of like sleep or nutrition. I would just eat what I wanted. And you know, it was never, never an issue. Uh, whereas now I'm like, I'm really focused on like my nutrition. I'm I'm focusing more on my sleep. I still need to work on that one. (laughs) Um, And I kind of like also trying to give myself time in the day as well, which kind of belongs to me. And I just started that with kind of like 10 minutes um, a a day of kind of time, which belongs to me and nobody else. Um, And I kind of shut everything else out and just focus on, you know, on myself for 10 minutes and then kind of try to build that into longer periods of time. Uh, But yeah, I've I've never known so much about myself. I I have to be careful. Um, And more recently, I've kind of started kind of experimenting with, uh, you know, like with my kind of getting my balances of like macro and micronutrients. So in terms of like carbohydrates, proteins, fats and things and seeing like what works best for me uh, with this condition and making sure that like my energy levels are as high as possible because obviously your thyroid control controls Mm. pretty much every hormonal reaction in your body. Um, So I have to be on top of that. And in a way, it's kind of, it's quite cool, really, kind of seeing what works. And I kind of experimenting with different proteins, because I I noticed that for me, like, uh, higher levels of protein uh, help me and then and and fat um, and less carbs actually kind of make help my body kind of keep my energy levels steady and up. Um, so I kind of focus on that a lot more, um, which is which is really interesting. so kind of working with different like protein powders and uh, different kind of like amino acids and things like that at the moment to kind of figure out like what works for me and what balances my body out and I actually I feel I feel really really good at the moment um which which is awesome and it's like my brain's kind of switched on (laughs) which Mm -hmm. which yeah kind of one of the side effects of kind of like um the thyroid side of things when it's out of whack is like real kind of brain fog where your brain's really Mm -hmm. fuzzy you just can't really think straight so yeah it's quite nice for that not to be not to be there
1: (laughs) it must have felt like Because you were obviously operating at like subpar. I mean, it probably became your new norm, but you knew that there was something not quite right. And it must be incredibly frustrating when you're going to, you know, medical professionals and they're kind of not researching any deeper to kind of find out what the real cause is. Um, It's lucky that you kind of knew yourself enough to keep pushing the question.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think this is like, you know, for anybody who's um, struggling with, you know, a physical or mental uh, issue at the moment is, you know, your body, you've lived with yourself, you know, for however many years, you know, you know, your body and your mind better than anybody else does. And, you know, when we go to see doctors, I know within the UK, it's like a, a general practitioner has you know with the national health service in the uk we only have 10 minutes where we can talk to a doctor there's no way that they can look back at your you know the root cause of things and look at things all they can do is manage the symptoms that you're showing there and you know kind of try to come up with some sort of kind of idea of why you're feeling that way and then you end up getting prescribed you know medication and and things you know whereas a lot of things you could actually you know really if you start taking it back to you know the the foundations, the fundaments, you know, which we talked about earlier, you know, in terms of nutrition, hydration, sleep, uh, and really kind of focusing on those very, very basic human needs or animal needs. Um, you know, we can go a long way to kind of helping heal ourselves and make ourselves feel better and start managing. And again, it's like that whole taking ownership Uh, you know, so my doctors, uh, my doctor, my, my sister is a, is a doctor. She's a general practitioner and she gets so frustrated with, uh, patients that she sees because she sees so many patients that are on medication. And she's like, well, they wouldn't need to be on medication if they looked after themselves and took ownership, uh, of their health themselves in terms of, you know, pre-diabetes is a stage, is a state where you could actually potentially reverse. Um, you know, the onset of diabetes. But so many of the patients she sees just won't do that. They just won't change the lifestyle um, to do that. And they just want the medication instead. Um, And, you know, we need to start taking more ownership. We've kind of become quite lazy, I think, in the way that we live. And as as animals, we always take the easy path. Um, It's all about conserving energy. Survival is all about conserving energy um, and preserving that energy. So, you know, we always take try to take the easy path, but actually, you know, we're not in a survival situation. We can take control and take ownership of our own health. And there's so much amazing information out there now as well. And it's not super scientific, you know, so whatever uh, issue that you're going through, I know for me, like with the autoimmune disease and stuff, it's like I've done so much reading and so much talking to other people. Um, And then you can kind of really experiment and it's quite fun. If you see it as like an adventure, (laughs) it's quite fun actually to kind of start experimenting with these things uh, and, you know, seeing what works for you and, like, taking ownership and taking control uh, of of your life. Um, And it's, yeah, it's quite enjoyable actually once you start doing it.
1: (laughs) Again, it's going down the rabbit hole and, and, you know, I I like to hear when people um, have self-awareness and, you know, I don't think you need to be doing these things just if you get sick. I think it's something that we should consider uh, at any state. Um, you know, how and at the moment I'm doing something where I'm wearing a monitor and I'm not at all sponsored by this brand. It's it's a whoop and I'm balancing like my strain. So like my exertion, my effort throughout the day, not just in my physical activity of going for a run or a mountain bike, but realizing the cumulative effect of all the things that I do, which are no, typically I'm like high intensive in everything I do. Like I'm always dashing from one thing to the next or like I, I'm not particularly sedentary. But the reality with that is I need to give myself more recovery. And I think there is a a greater view now that recovery is one of the strongest training sessions that you can actually do. Um, That time in restoration allows us to peak perform in our, you know, very concentrated exertion efforts. Uh, So that's something that I'm kind of playing with now just to kind of realise Probably my recovery is something that I'm particularly being a mother and how, you know, just sleep gets wiped away sometimes when your toddler's up in the middle of the night and um, you come second off, often in the sleep process. And I'm just taking a bit more responsibility about if I don't sleep as much, the reality is I shouldn't be exerting as much.
0: Yeah, those I've got, I've been wearing a whoop for the past 10 months as well. I'm not sponsored either, <laughs> but we can sponsor us. We're two people, we like it. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. Like watching like the recovery and stuff. I, I couldn't agree more. It's so fascinating seeing like the process and it's made me much more intelligent with my training and being much kinder with myself and allowing mm-hmm. myself to have time off or time down or an easier day. Um, and I think, you know, having something telling you <laughs> that you can do that, you know, makes me feel a lot more comfortable in in doing that and giving time to myself. Because I think we're kind of brought up in a society where we feel quite selfish if we give ourselves time. Um, whereas yep. actually having this little device that says, actually, today, you're not doing too good. <laughs> it's time to drink coffee and eat crap. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's been a bit liberating for me. I mean, I've always felt that knowledge is power, uh, and to have this kind of app track you know the fact that sometimes I'll do this you know 9k loop from my house it's quite hilly and one day I'll feel quite fine in it um, but then the next day it will put a lot more strain on my body just because of other things going on uh, and it's just you know every every day is different every time you get out to do a training session or you do a climb your body is likely to respond in a different way and you need to Think of yourself more holistically with the food that you eat, the the yin-based activities that you do, the hydration that you take on, the salts that you absorb. You've got to think of things in a bigger picture. And I think that gives us long, sustained health, not just in duration, but also the quality of life that we lead as well. And, you know, for you and I who are both adventurers who like to live this adventurous lifestyle, you know, the quality of our life is important just as much as the duration
0: Absolutely, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and again, it's like that taking ownership, isn't it, and learning about about yourself.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's um, it's so funny because we've never met, but I just you know the more we speak, the more um, similarities that I realise in different ways that we share. I think there'll be a lot. Of, I definitely have a, a higher percentage of listeners who are, are females, and I think sometimes. You know, females who might not have grown up in an environment where they were taught survival skills, they're learning them more at a later age of their life because there's a greater interest at that point. One, because we might want to be more self-sufficient or more, we just want to be more adventurous. What do you think, um, to kind of cap off this conversation, would be three valuable skills that a female at any age could start to learn to be more survival ready well, I think,
0: honestly, like like I said earlier, it's like anybody who has survived this far, you know, has their own survival skills. So I think, you know, I think for women, what I see a lot of is having more self-confidence, you know, looking at, because I think we, we're our own worst critics and we're really harsh on ourselves. So I think it's really looking at what you've achieved already and being like, look, this I've achieved this in my career. I've ach- achieved this in my everyday life. Um, you know, I've achieved this in, you know, whatever aspects and it's like really kind of celebrating those and being like, look, I've survived through that. I got myself through that. Um, I've got the skills for this Um, and I see this a lot in um, survival scenarios when like we really drop people out into situations where they kind of have to survive it's it's often women that do a lot better than men because they question they question themselves they question the environment and they're always looking around them for themselves for ways to better the better their situation Um, and it's a very holistic way that women tend to look at the world um so have more confidence in yourself and have more faith. You know, you do have those skills and you'll be surprised. Um, you know, another one is to have a belief like we are far stronger than we can even imagine. I mean, you you know this from from yeah. the adventure racing. It's like you hit your wall and you can dig deeper. Um, and that is, you know, that's just absolutely incredible. And you know, the third one, if this is for, you know, women who are wanting to get more into like kind of adventurous pursuits or spend more time outside, is to do a training course, you know, doing a training course in the skills, like skill sets, so the basic skills of, like, navigation, you know, if you're doing kayaking, then you know training kayaking or climbing or whatever it might be, um, and that will help give you the confidence, you know, to take the next steps and become uh, independent uh, adventurers in, you, in your own right. Uh, there's a whole industry of instructors and guides and leaders like ready to kind of take you out on your adventure and who will set you up for your adventurous career to come.
1: I think a lot of people are going to be um, pinging you after this to see what uh, trip that you might be leading in the future when things open up a little bit more.
0: (laughs) Well, we've got some great trips to Mongolia next year, actually next September. Yeah, so I'm really (sighs) excited about them actually. I've got a really amazing mountaineering trip, um, which is 10 days and um, a trip... To, that's to like, that's on horseback, Spent uh, living um, with uh, eagle hunters, like the traditional Mongolian eagle hunters, and then going to the one of the festival of the eagles, which is incredible, where you get to watch um, competitors like competing with their, like on horseback and with their eagles. And, you know, we've got, uh, we'll be able to have our clients actually taking part in, in the festival <gasps> as well, like flying their own eagles, which is so exciting.
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> so, so cool. cool. You know, you had this trip planned for this year, didn't you, initially?
0: I did, yeah. It was a trip that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And because of the T V work that I do, it's it's so fluid and all over the place. But it's kind of like I I've been missing like doing more kind of expeditions with clients mm-hmm. and stuff. So I'm kind of I'm trying to offer, you know, several per year for now for kind of clients to kind of just sign up to. Um and they're kind of their trips that are really kind of close to my heart and things that, you know, that I, I've really kind of feel very passionately about so yeah these these are quite exciting so yeah this this one was it was supposed to be running this year but i i had moved it to next year and then have added this so you can actually do them back to back if you're interested in doing the mountaineering and then the, the eagles
1: <laughs> what kind of experience uh, needs to be had for people to do the mountaineering one
0: um so for the mountaineering one it's 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 non-technical we will be on glaciers um so we will be roped up we will be having crampons which are kind of these metal spikes that you wear on your feet um but uh, it the sort of previous experience you know if you do have mountaineering experience fantastic not necessarily uh, important we will be doing training in country of moving on glaciers and you know how to walk in these the crampons Uh, and things and kind of rope management and stuff we'll be doing the training in country um, ideally like a good level of fitness so you know the ability to be able to be out in the hills or mountains for kind of six or seven hours hiking um, during the day kind of like kind of sort of standard mountain day uh, would be important but it's it's next September so there's plenty of time now uh, to kind of get training get fit and you know my team are always available to kind of help motivate and give people ideas on kind of getting fit and things for for that trip for the riding trip um ideally having kind of riding experience beforehand i mean again it's not going to be kind of crazy riding um but it's like a long time in the saddle and you will get a really sore bum <laughs> so yeah, the more <laughs> riding you've got beforehand <laughs> the better it will be for your bum <laughs>
1: <laughs> well where do people find out more about your bespoke adventures
0: Um, So, either through following me on Instagram at Megan Hine um, or through my website, which is meganhine.com.
1: Amazing. I've just jumped on your website right now. Glorious photography. And yes, second up on the panel is Bespoke Adventure. it's, I feel so grateful that you've uh, given me two hours of your time. I know that you've been climbing and you've been working really long hours and this is a little bit of time that you have off. So thank you for sharing that time with me and your experiences.
0: No, I am mean, it's amazing. Thank you so much. It's really, it's always so nice connecting with, uh, you know, superhuman females <laughs> and males as well. But it's always really nice connecting with people who are so passionate about what they do and also with like sharing, you know, message, you know, for other women and other men as well and like kind of, you know, empowering people. So, you know, thank you so much for having me.
1: Ah, pleasure is all mine and I think you're right I think sharing um, experiences also normalizes um, the things that people do a lot more and as I, I said before I think there's sometimes barriers to adventure or to survival pursuits or to just being able to tackle really any you know th- any long-term goal that you set so I think within this conversation you've deconstructed a lot and I really liked what you just shared then about you know the confidence the belief that you've actually experienced hardships Challenges and success enough in your life that will lend you to nearly any experience that you will be faced in.
0: Yeah, definitely. Having, having faith in yourself is so important.
1: Yeah, amazing. Well, I hope that the world opens up and that we get to see each other uh, in the flesh uh, sometime soon. And maybe we'll be, you know, on bikes or riding horses somewhere in uh, Mongolia. Woohoo! <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, and that is the beauty of the deep dive. Now, if you guys like this conversation, found it to be of value, I would love it if you would take a screenshot of your podcast right now if you're listening to it via phone and share it via socials, tagging both the Sam Gesh podcast and Megan. Um, it's a great way for other people to find out about the conversation. I feel like we went through topics in this chat that we haven't done so before and that is by virtue of Megan's willingness and depth of experience in in spaces where she's really tested herself and she really knows who she is. So don't forget to follow her. Thank you for tuning in and taking us all the way to the two hours and without a doubt I hope you are happy, safe and well wherever you are and I look forward to bringing you another conversation next week.